0: what's up Kyle my name is David Sutter um, about to tune into your show after a pretty exceptional day spearfishing in Los Angeles a little bit about me as I grew up surfing Ocean Beach got into diving and paddling while at school at USC um, I'm working up the nerve right now to hit Mavericks and getting a lot of inspiration from your YouTube seri- series and what Nick Von Rupp has been doing on the left as well as Lucas um, I wanted to say keep crushing it I love it when you interview Mark Healy or any of the big wave or hunting legends. Um, I'd like to suggest that you interview Mark Doc renneker Um, I want to hear you grill him on tackling the potato patch alone, as well as, you know, really get into his cancer advocacy and maybe even his spirituality a bit. Um, Anyways, if I ever see you out at Mavs, beer's on me after. Cheers. Thank you for sending that in, David. Happy to hear you had a good spearfishing session. And uh, yes, I would love to interview Doc Renneker. I'll make that happen if we ever cross paths. This episode of the podcast is with Moshe Kasher. Moshe is a professional stand-up comedian. He performed at the Motherfucker Awards last winter with his wife, Natasha Leggero. Uh He is the co-host of the Champs podcast with Neil Brennan. Author of the acclaimed memoir, Casher and the Rye, he was selected as one of Variety's magazine's 10 Comics to Watch, LA Times' Faces to Watch, and iTunes' Comic of the Year. You can go to Netflix and watch his comedy special, Moshe Casher live in Oakland, right now. I am down in LA, getting a bunch of good podcasts done, already working on this year's Motherfucker Awards. Uh, Trying to find an agent uh, Or someone who can help us Potentially sell the Motherfucker Awards As a show Um, We'll see if that happens Um, We're definitely going to do the live event We filmed it last year But um, You know The more uh, The more people that we can get eyes on These amazing corporations That we are celebrating for fucking Mother Earth um, The more likely It is that we can Change corporate behavior. So, um, I'm figuring out ways that we can make as big a splash as possible and trying to navigate my way through the big city as best I can. I have had some help from a few of the comics who are putting me in touch with folks, but I, to be honest, have no idea how to sell a TV show. So, if you are a hitter agent in LA and you're like, hey, I want to turn this thing into a TV show uh you can reach out info at kyle.surf that's also where you can send these these voice memos that i love getting from you just let me know who you are some details about your surrounding uh and email it to info kyle.surf um this was a really good podcast very happy with it before we get going i want to let you all know that uh I'm almost out of the box of goodies. So these, this is a box of um, one of my favorite books, um, Sex at Dawn, uh can of mud water, and Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD coconut oil in a box at a greatly discounted price. You can only buy it on my website, kyle.surf, and I will mail it to your doorstep. Um, so we have two separate boxes you can get, one with Sex at Dawn, signed copy, and one with... Um, signed copy of the psychedelic Explorers guide and once the inventory is out there's about i would say seven left in each uh box they're all done um i'm not going to be doing more box of goodies until uh i decide to do it again um which maybe never so if you want that assortment of, of uh goodies Go to the website, get them before they're gone. Uh, If you just want one of the items, if you think, hey, you know, I don't need all three of those, but I do want to try out some mud water, you can get $10 off your subscription to mudwater by typing in Kyle10 you can go to mudwtr.com uh and try it out you can cancel it anytime Kyle10 similarly for santa cruz medicinals you can go to scmedicinals.com and you can get 10% off any product by typing in the code name Kyle10 so easy so simple Um, Both these companies make wonderful products. If you want to learn more about SC Medicinals, uh, go back to my episode with Brendan Rue. He's the founder. He's a brilliant human being, and I love talking to him. Uh, And I have an episode coming out very shortly with the founders of Mudwater, which I was also very happy with. It's nice when uh, the, the people who sponsor your podcast are also just intellectually stimulating and and people who i would sit down with regardless so uh look forward to that coming at you very soon um i gave moshe a patagonia wetsuit um which he has been enjoying so if you wonder why we keep referencing this wetsuit throughout the podcast that's why and without further ado please welcome to the podcast one of my favorite comedians of all time
1: Yeah. Uh... do
0: Moshe Kasher in the house yeah big up here's how's the uh Patago- how's the Patagonia sponsorship going oh really good man it, are you Do most surfers get um sponsored one wetsuit and that's it for the rest of the well you know I just we we, we don't want to spoil you you know yeah, there, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. it happens a lot you know in Hawaii a lot of young surfers come up they get too much too soon they fall to crack oh that's for ice so, yeah they fall the, into the ice. ice yeah that's right yeah stay off uh what, what what cook cook rice not ice that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. no i'll be i paddle out stay and clean I, surf me and and I, <laughs> I i tell the
2: guys you know i like point at the suit and i go hey i go you first of all i go you lex or whatever you you lex you lex motherfucker me lex and then i go i didn't pay for this shit Sponsored, And then I wipe out on a two foot wave and I'm like, and that's what pays the big bucks.
0: Yeah. Well, I saw that you had, uh, some comedy in Hawaii recently. Yeah. And did you have a chance to surf Waimea and use the new inflation vest? <laughs> yeah. I surfed, uh, with the Waimea, uh, Hilton. Nice. Huh? Yeah. I was able to, uh, do, uh dude,
2: the, uh, you, Kyle hit me up and he's like, we've been trying to do this podcast a while. And he's like, Oh, we'll surf together. And, he's, and I'm like, okay, I'm not very good, though. And he's like, oh, it's all good. And then the other day, you hit me up, and you were like, okay, man, let's do it. We'll go to Venice Breakwater. I'll get What did you say? I'll get you into some stand-up. Was I'll, it a I'll joke?
0: Get, I'll get you into a stand-up barrel. I'll <laughs> get you into some stand-up
2: barrels, and then we'll do a podcast. I'm like, I don't really think you are comprehending the, the level of not. Because I feel like people like you, when you hear not good, you hear a different not good than is really not good. Right, yeah. Like, let me put it in perspective. I think, I recently realized this. Uh, uh, when I was out out surfing, I think I'm the worst surfer in the world to have been surfing as long as I have. I think I might be... I might have the rock. I might have the... The award.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might That's, be the top. Like you've you've you love the pain. Like you, you love staying <laughs> in what. that really painful. I suck. I can barely catch a wave zone. I don't know why. What, like, what I love. There have got to be comics like that though that have That's, just done it for years and years and, and years. All and they and do it, is bomb. Right. Well, they just or they like come back and they continue to tell the same jokes that don't work again and again that's like (laughs) you for the the past 10 years still can't catch the wave but
2: there's a difference because a comedian who does that is delusional and they usually will walk off stage and be like Fuck. Yeah. Just nailed it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't have that delusion. I'm out there. I'm like, you know what I think about sometimes when I'm surfing? I think about comedy. I'll literally be paddling into a wave and I'll go, at least I'm good at that. I swear. Like, at least I have that (laughs) skill. (laughs) (laughs) I think because it's a fun thing to be in such an ego driven activity and have. I mean, I don't think it's hard to say no ego about it. But, like, I don't have the the right to have an ego. Like, I'm like, it's true humility. <laughs> right. Like, I'm just like, there's no part of me that's like, I'm fucking nailing it.
0: Right. Well, you're also interacting with something that's just so much grander than yourself. The yeah. ocean's like, fucking suck my dick. Not a chance. And it's so easy to induce panic in people. Like, totally. one of my favorite things is to see some, like, CrossFit guy paddle out. And, <laughs> got this. And then <laughs> a three-foot double-up comes and... I had that Cook once slams.
2: I had that once in uh, oh it's my only goal in surfing it's not to ever get barreled. It's to never make it on the kook slams. Right. I'll look around. Sometimes I'll po- I'll pop my eyes out on the beach if I see. I don't want to see like an ironic long haired like ripper with a with an iPhone setup. I'm like, I know who you are, motherfucker. <laughs>
0: yeah, just, I'll go I over see. there,
2: and be like, I'm a stand up comedian. And at least I'm good at that. You know, non
0: disclosure agreements. <laughs> it's like you can't you can't film me while I'm doing my sets in a show. You can't film me while I'm practicing out on the wave. I I was trying to do a web series actually for a while. Um,
2: Billabong, I I got close, and then they—they clearly fired their their person, who I was interacting with. I wanted to do like a web series of like the uh, world. Basically, the the bit that I was doing with you about being like sponsored by Patagonia is like the world's uh, worst sponsored surfer and just like super high production value, like one of those videos with those like, you know, kids in Hawaii where they're like, we're just riding into the bay right now. And it's like sun setting and like, so, you know, Jack Johnson playing and like, it's tacos first and then we hit the waves and then it's a like ripping like, you know, quadruple overheads. But it's like me doing the same thing, but like middle aged dude like packing up the, you know, show my quiver. And it's just like all wave storms. Like the whole, it's just like, we'll do the Rasta one is when I'm feeling a little irie, you know, but like, this is an old school and all, I had all these bits planned out. Like I wanted to get towed into, uh, like a one foot wave. That was my, right, right, I just right, thought right. that would be a really fun thing. And
0: then you get sucked out in a rip riptide. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. like, Pull the inflation vest. What else?
2: There were some bits I, I, I loved. Oh, I loved, uh, I, I like, I was like, you know, the best part. Of this whole... It's the parking lot. That's the best part because nobody knows how good you are when you're here. When you're in the lot, nobody knows. You could have... Anyway.
0: There's this great uh, Instagram meme where it's four photos and it says uh, what you're girlfriend thinks you're, you're doing right. and it's a guy in a stand-up barrel it says what your mom thinks you're doing and it's a guy fighting off a shark that uh-huh. says what you're really doing and it's a guy in a parking lot with a cup of coffee
2: uh, that's very funny yeah they, they applied that out to every scene right they had the Burning Man one they had the stand-up comedy one I don't remember what they all were so how long have you been surfing
0: since 85 yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like it has, it's not been that long I mean that would be rough I was like 30 <laughs> years man my dad used to take me out like,
0: but, yeah I got skin cancer. I got (laughs) surfer's ear and I still can't go down the line. (laughs) No, I I don't know. You have all the afflictions of a surfer. Like I've lost all of my vocabulary. I just say, dude, and everything (laughs) slowed down. (laughs) So you must be pretty good.
2: No, I've never gotten up actually. No, I've been surfing probably probably four or five years, maybe kind of a thing. Yeah. I I don't remember exactly. Right. But I definitely wonder what, like I love, I love it. And I, it is, it is, it is, maybe I love it because of this. It's a true mystery what it is that I like about it because I, every other thing in my life, my whole life, I have been a person who is drawn to the thing that I'm good at. When I'm talented at something, I, I pursue it. And when I'm not, I quit. Like I really quit and that's why I never did sports growing up. I like anything that I would hit at any kind of wall. I don't know. That's kind of sort of a bad character trait, but it's just true. Like comedy, it's not that it came easy to me, but it immediately had a feedback loop of like, okay, you're good enough at this because comedy is nothing but nailing your head against the wall. Even when you're talented, it's going to be 10,000
0: failures. So, but you at least saw a little thread that you could pull on. There are other sports like rugby where you're like, Oh, no, no not not happening in this life. My rugby
2: career came and went very quickly. Now I will say that I am wearing a rugby shirt right now. And that's probably why you said that, but I do the rugby shirt, uh, for hip hop, not for sports. Okay. So, so you, I
0: thought it was national bumble, bumblebee day. <laughs> Don't you roast me motherfucker. No. <laughs> um, but, uh, but
2: surfing is the one thing that I, for some reason was like, am i always describe myself as i should maybe stop describing myself this way because i could get better maybe if i like did some kind of weird mental game with myself or I was yeah like, it's negative negative self-talk man yeah i guess but i'm jewish so it's just talk <laughs> uh but it's uh but it's i'm i always say i'm like i'm like i'm whatever the opposite of talented is at this and i continue doing it and i there's a part of me that's like really into that mystery it's like a mystery about myself. Like, I wonder what it is that made me want to do a thing consistently and often that I don't, I don't have a gift for. And I just, I I mean, don't get me wrong. I I go surfing. I have fun. I catch waves, but I'm just like, I'm like, what is this thing? What does it represent about my psychology that I want a thing that I don't for the first time, don't get immediate Positive right. feedback from.
0: Do you think that it might be the situation that it takes you into? You mean like yeah, it takes, it's taking answer. you into the wild, into the, into the beauty? Of and, yeah. The sim- I, that, yeah, that's what I get from a lot of people who I take surfing, where I will go out and there aren't many waves, and I'll say, "Hey, man, I'm really sorry, we couldn't get you better waves." I'm like, I was just happy to see a sea otter.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah that, there is definitely that. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this on here before. I don't want to do any cliches, but it's like it, it is an interesting thing in that it's it's a, it's an activity that has multifacets, right? It's got meditation. It's got nature communion. It's got physical exercise, hangout and vacation. It's all of those things. And I don't know that there's any other thing, any other form of physical activity that's quite got maybe mountain biking, I guess.
0: Yeah, maybe. I think there's also something, um, you know, it's it's different than a lot of other sports because you're basically you're pushing against the wave and the wave's pushing back, right? Right? And and you can't out push a wave. You know, there are a lot of sports like rugby, for example, where you're just really oh, pushing. Thing. That's your yeah, your thing. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a an analogy that won't work, but it, maybe it's the way like you relax in comedy and you do better.
2: R- sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's definitely. this
0: kind of like softening that the best surfers can acquire and there's something really beautiful about softening kind of in the midst of so much intensity it is that's maybe attractive you no know, it is
2: funny that it's a sport that has this like very macho element to it but in reality what it is here it's a very female situation it's very much uh, acceptance and passive I, I guess on the other hand you're like popping up the the great boner of of uh, Duke <laughs> right. Kahana Mehu or whatever you know the, the yeah the, the, the great Duke the great Duke course. the boner of the Duke but there so that's very male I guess popping up and being like I am man but there's something else where you're like you're just a a thing inside of a thing you're like
0: well, yeah well and all the best surfers most of the best surfers have a kind of feminine quality or like Rob Machado or uh-huh. Dave Rostovich, there is this kind of feminine aspect to the way that they're moving with the wave. Now
2: I, tell me if I'm doing this wrong. Cause I've been paddling out with my Ulex and I'll go up to some of the older guys in the lineup and I'll say to them, like, this is a Ulex, this I'm sponsored. It was free. And I'm noticing a lot that you all have a lot of feminine qualities. Like your surfing is very, feels to me, from my observation, extremely feminine.
0: Yeah, well, I would say a better way to win their approval would be to say, you know, I'm noticing that you all have a lot of petroleum-based wetsuits, <laughs> and sure. uh, we're out in the ocean, fellas. Right, so right, I just right. want to let you know that I have a plant-based, you look wetsuit.
2: And when I think petroleum-based, I think of. Uh, a lubricant for passive anal sex. Yeah. And because I'm, <laughs> I'm noticing some of the more feminine quality. I wonder if it, it doesn't. I, I'm not popular, I would say. I would say I'm not popular in the lineup.
0: Mm. Yeah. Just tell them you know Kyle.
2: Okay. <laughs> so that'll do it. That. That, that, That's that'll, all I need.
0: That'll deal with all the problems. You know, I actually wrote an article uh, called Localism 2.0. So I live in, in Santa Cruz. I grew up there. There's a lot of localism. Wait, is it the one about the lineup where you wait your turn? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, wait, I, tell me, tell so, me. More. So it's an ar- It's, it's an article about, it's basically making an argument that, um, your hierarchy in the lineup should be determinant on community service. Uh uh-huh. So you should go. You should go out there and be like, "Hey, motherfucker! I spent eight hours doing a beach cleanup yesterday. I'm getting the <laughs> set wave because I argue that to be a local in a lineup, like all you had to do was be born near there. Right. It took no effort. Right. so you could argue that the person that came in from from over the hill or you know Oakland who drove all the way to Santa Cruz to surf, they in a sense walked, you know, 10 miles up to uphill in snow to get there. And they deserve the wave more than you do.
2: Yeah. But then you got like city councilmen and stuff snaking your waves. Yeah. Motherfucker. I passed (laughs) measure AB 12404, which created a, a, you know, a a testing structure in the middle schools in this local area. And they're like, all right, just go ahead. You seem annoying. Go ahead. Yeah. I read a different article about localism It it reminded me of what you're talking about, about this. It was a, it was a fiction, a fictional story of a fictional, like magical lineup where, uh, it was, I thought it was really fun. Like basically you paddle out and it was like this guy, they were like, Hey, welcome to the lineup. We go, we go in turns here. And the guy was like, you know, the fictional the surfer that had pedaled, I was like, "What do you mean turns? You know, I'm fucking. What are you talking about? This is Ulex, bitch." <laughs> yeah. And they were like, "No, that's how this works." And uh, you, everybody goes one at a time. And he's like, "But what? That guy sucks." And they're like, "He's like, they're like, yeah, totally." And like, well, he's not going to get the wave. They're like, "Well, that's part of it." And like, and and he's like, "Well, who determines the order?" And they like pointed at the oldest guy. It was this weird kind of magical. I love that. And it was kind of like, um, w- like. When they would catch a wave, everybody would applaud. It was just like bizarre imagining of what what it would be like if if that's how you did lineups.
0: Do you know the story of the bonobos that reorganized hierarchically after? Um, so there was this pile of meat. Sure. Right, and all of the alpha bonobos would eat this pile of meat, and they would gorge on it. But one day, um, there was some kind of poison in the meat, and all of the alphas in the bonobo try uh, troop. Died off, so then it was just females and betas, and they reorganized. That's me, by the way. Right, it was just a bunch of moshes. That's my kind of lineup, right there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they reorganized the society to be much more egalitarian, Uh and researchers noticed this whole thing. And then new, uh, uh, new alphas from a separate troop came in and tried to assert their dominance, but very quickly were kind of overthrown. It was the bonobos were like, "Hey guys, no, we we take turns with the food around here," and I think that it's it's interesting to look at how various groups will organize in hierarchies. Surfing, there's a lot of conflict. You know, it right. hasn't really been organized, but in a dojo, it's very well organized. You go in, you know exactly where you sit. right? Um, and then you work your way up. Comedy is probably similar. Like if, if oh. I went in to go do stand-up, you'd be like, uh, sorry, Kyle, no, you're not gonna get to go on whenever you want. Maybe there will be time for you at some point but you're new, so you're going to wait.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, there's this phenomenon that comedians talk about that is 100% true, which is when there's a new person on the scene like there's just so many comedians i mean a comedian now is i'm a comedian now is the same as i'm a dj was in like the early 2000s it's like oh really you you too right no no
0: but i'm a comedian with a podcast (laughs) now now you're
2: in now you're in the lineup (laughs) eat the rotting meat you're one of our betas but like there's a, a phenomenon that's very real which is when you meet a new comedian like you just can't it's not even being an elitist you can't really remember who they are you can't they they don't exist fully mentally. I try to be kind to everyone because it's just who I am and my disposition. But it's like I'm sure someone has thought that I've blown them off. And I'm like I think I'm like among the nice the nicer. But then you see someone kill. Even if they're not, it's like it doesn't matter if they're if they're famous or not. If you see someone be funny, then you remember then they enter your brain. And then they're like in your you now acknowledge like oh okay and I've it's happened to me the other thing like a legendary comedians will treat me with like you know if they don't know who I am they'll treat me with less sort of acknowledgement and then I will notice they'll see me kill and they go oh hey Moshe like it's like even if they even if they kind of know who I am and they haven't seen me. It's like a different level of... Ex- very similar in a surf lineup. Totally similar. Right? Much more immediate, right? Much it's, more immediate. But like yeah. you see
0: someone paddle out to your local spot, and all of a sudden they shred away. But all of hey, yeah. who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. But it's always the best when someone comes out and they're very mellow. They sit on the inside and then they just fucking destroy away. Yeah. And you're like, damn, that's cool.
2: Yeah, they're just sitting back and waiting for their spot, right? Yeah. And comedy, yeah, comedy is... It's, got, it's definitely got that... That thing I, that is, you know, a hierarchy based solely on, are you good? You know, are you talented? Do you have it? I, I used to say, and I think this is not true anymore. I think that, like, I, I hate to bring them up, but, like, I hate, think that post-Trump people have all gone insane. Everyone has, like, the rules that used to apply don't apply, so I, it doesn't really It's not as true as it used to be, but right when the country was kind of splitting apart ideologically, I was like, oh, everyone could learn a lot from comedy because there are right-wing comedians. And the whole idea that there are no funny right-wing comedians is just not the truth. It's just something that liberals tell themselves so that they can have a stranglehold on some intellectual sort of thing. But um, there are funny right-wing comedians and there are funny left-wing comedians and in Again, this has become less true as we've become more polarized in the last two years, but a right wing asshole and a left wing asshole would be able to get along in a comedy space because there's a third and much more dominant ethic, which is, are you funny? That was like that was so much more important than are you do 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 we align ideologically so you could have people you know like like nick DiPaolo or more more right leaning comedians and people like ted alexandro these are people that are both at the same uh comedy club in, in new york city the comedy cellar um and they would just sort of find they would just get along because it's like well he's funny and and i always thought if only there was a well well, they're funny for the whole world. We could like find some way to escape from the like trench warfare that we're in. I'm a
0: huge believer in that, man. I, I there's that quote: the what laughter is the short, shortest distance between two people, which I think is very, very true. Right, right. Um, and I think you know, s- s- similarly with the environmental movement, there are a lot of people who are unwilling to get involved in these kinds of issues because they're so not funny. Like, I think that one observation I've made is that comedians are very earnest people Mm. for the most part. Like when you get them into it, like they're, they care about things. They're constantly thinking about ideas and, and, um, you know, inserting their own ideas, their own stories into the culture. And they wouldn't do that if they didn't care. But, many of them are terrified of coming across as earnest.
2: That's for sure. Definitely. That's true. Nobody wants to be corny, except I guess there's like a new branch, a new version of comedy, which is that actually it's more important to be earnest than it is to be funny. And Mm -hmm. that's like the new, the new, like sort of like politically lefty comedy, like politically, I'm much more politically left than my comedy is. If that makes sense. Like my comedy sensibilities, I came up at a time when funny was the most important thing. And I, sort of don't necessarily think that that's as true for young people. Now it's like righteousness is the most important thing. And then secondarily is, is making the righteous thought funny. And my thing is more like, I know who I am politically. I just want to be funny. I don't need to like, I don't need to uh, uh, do an alchemy of those two sentiments or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I think that, yeah, that comedy, the funniness has, has sort of taken, And this isn't a complaint or me like rallying my fist. I think it's like sort of speaks to. Do
0: you think maybe identity has become more important than just telling jokes? Well,
2: I mean, I'm not a dude who's ever been. I really, truly mean this. Like, I've never been threatened. That's what I was going to say. Like, I've never been threatened by new waves of thought in comedy. I might not respond to them i might they might not appeal to my comedic sensibility but they don't make me go like uh-oh what does this mean for me i can't I. you know what i mean like so what i was going to say is yes comedians are very earnest and deep thinkers about certain things and and wrestlers with uh, the stories of the world and stuff but also um there i have noticed obviously i've noticed that comedy like, mod, young modern comedy has gotten a little bit softer and more identity-based. But I've also noticed that old-school comedians are have are incredibly uh, insecure, brittle, and defensive about comedy. It's like we, we didn't go past the idea that being funny is the only important thing. It's like, it's not the only important thing at all. It's not even really that important. It's just important to us. And, like, a lot of comedians I will see being, the, like incredibly insecure I have this whole I have a lot of thoughts about it but they're like incredibly insecure about I think the like subconscious reason is that com- a lot of comedians are incredibly insecure about how legitimate an art form comedy actually is. So you can tell that because they'll be screaming, "Comedy is a legitimate art form." You can always tell it's probably not a deeply held belief when somebody's screaming it from yeah. the rooftops, Big like shucks. Yeah, like burning a copy of Nanette, going <laughs> like, "Comedy!" Ah, you know, it's like okay, I, I what the the reaction to that special in particular. I was like, oh, everybody. All of these people that are upset by us, like that. Did you see that special? No. It was this? Was this? It's Hannah Gatsby's net. It was like a big talking point. I don't want to get too deep into it because I know, like, it was such a talking point because it was a comedy special that deconstructed the idea of comedy and and in in for a good a long chunk of it, it was not funny and not meant to be. And then other people would go like, "Well, I didn't find the whole thing funny," and it was like to me, it was like, "But there's so many, there's so many specials out there that are." Not your cup of tea, but that are attempting to just be funny the whole time that this one thing that was like trying to it was essentially to be fair to comedians. The the thrust, the narrative thrust of it was that comedy is uh, is kind of an inadequate form of self-reflection. That's at least at least for the comedian that was that was telling that was doing the material that, you know, it's like that comedy is is weak and ineffective Truly, because all it really does is make fun of things. And, you know, there are deeper and more profound things out there. And it's like I watched it and I was like, this is an interesting take on this person who is a lifer in the comedy world grappling with what she perceives to be.
0: Right. Do you feel ever like you have a very earnest thought that you want to get out in the world, but you can't figure out a way to make the thought funny so it doesn't fit into what you're doing?
2: hundred percent. And that is the difference between me and like, a, I think a younger, newer comedian is I feel like... I will I will only ever bring the thought to the stage if I find it funny enough to be brought to the stage. Now, not everybody will agree with me. Not everybody will think it's funny, but it's I'm only ever joking on stage. That's and that's plenty for me. I've always thought like being funny is enough. I don't need to be tell, speaking truth to power. I think speaking truth to power is more important than comedy, but it's not what I do for a living. I don't do speaking truth to power for a living. I do comedy for a living. But you can do both you simultaneously. You can obviously But if I can't find a way, to, you can absolutely do both, right? I mean, definitely. I don't particularly it's not really my brand of comedy like in terms of stand-up my other stuff that i've done my like my talk show a little bit i was i wasn't really trying to speak truth to power but i was trying to like have conversations that were sort of more meaty and more meaningful but uh but yeah you can do both but it isn't automatically both when you do when you are on a comedy stage saying a political thought like you know there's a lot of that now also is this you know this phenomenon of like clapter. Right, which is like, oh, were just, they, yeah,
0: they're clapping and they're, yeah, b- but they're not like having a hilarious belly laugh.
2: You're kind of going like, is this is this funny? I don't know. I don't feel threatened yeah. by it, but I definitely, it's not for me.
0: Do you feel at all like that's what someone like George
2: Carlin was doing? Well, no. I mean, Carlin is the example of a person that pounded a political idea or a, or a philosophical idea into into comedy. I mean, by the way, Carlin, I'm not. He's not my favorite comedian. None of the legends are my favorite. Uh, I, I think, but Carlin was a master, obviously, and he found a way to like, I mean, if you listen to a Carlin special, most Carlin specials, most Carlin bits, it's like truly a laugh a minute. And it was clearly attempting to get laughter, I would say more than it was attempting to get political points across. I mean, its primary purpose was being funny and its secondary purpose was delivering the message. Right. But that's my opinion. I'm not a Carlin expert. What,
0: what's your, um, like, uh, gauge for success around how many laughs you get per second or per minute? I'm not scientific
2: like okay. that, but I, if, if it's not like, if it doesn't like, if it's not just like sustained laughter throughout, or I'm specifically, there are bits in my special or in my act where there aren't laughs in a particular period but those are only setups it's only sincere calm non-laughter producing in order to like set up a a a laugh later it's not a pivot into like and now here's where we get real And, and yeah i guess i am welcome to my ted talk a little i don't know i like earnestness like my book i wrote a book And my book has very earnest parts, but they're very clearly defined, you know, like the the funny parts are in the beginning and then it descends into a more and more serious. In fact, the section of the book, uh, the sections of the book are um, uh, fun, fun with problems and just problems. It's like a story of my teenage drug addiction issues. So by the time we get into the just problems section of the book. It's not funny anymore, but it's not supposed to be funny.
0: What's the name for people who want to read it? It's called
2: cashier in the rye, a true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and, and then, then turned, turned 16. Oh, <laughs> you've done your research.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, this is so fascinating to me, man. Um, when it comes to something like, uh, you know, the motherfucker awards, right, which is a very earnest concept that I think many people are afraid to get involved. I think many people are, uh, care about the environment but are afraid to get involved in it. Yeah. Would you say that there is kind of a, a void of environmental humor in general? I, I mean, c- c- because obviously people are, are very into political humor. Like, they're into talking about big issues. But mm-hmm. I'm trying to grapple with why that is because there aren't, I I don't, haven't seen a ton of bits out there. I do
2: have a thought about it. I'm sure that some master out there can do it. I wish I would, I want to be the master that can do it, but it's like I've experimented on stage with, um, you know, just a throwaway line here. I do a lot of improv uh, in my show. Like I do a lot of crowd work and you know, like sometimes I'll say like, a throwaway line about like, oh, well, the ice caps are melting. We'll all be, you know, we we'll, are we'll, oh, this won't matter because we'll all be underwater. And it's not fun for people. Like it doesn't elicit. And not that that's the most genius line in the world, but like I can tell when an idea is radioactive, you know, and I wouldn't call that quite radioactive, but it's like, it seems close. You can just, uh, it, being a comedian is nothing but like, it, it, you know, you write your material and then you just like sort of feel energetically what, what crowd is responding? Like every comedian has a line in their act where you go, oh, this is the gauge of the intelligent crowd, right? Like I, I have – there's one line in my act right now where it's like if I, I tell – oh, it's um, – I think I might have found a workaround. I'm getting back to your question. But uh, it's uh, – I'm talking about the Me Too movement. And I say um, – uh, a lot of guys are saying the, the uh, not all men, I go, not all men, not all men. It's a part of a larger bit. And I go, I go, and I've thought about that one. And that's actually true. It's not all men, but it is all men. It has been all men so far, right? (laughs) That particular line, like if the crowd is smart, then they will, that'll be a nice laugh for me. If I'm dealing with a crowd that's not really, into this sort of me too stuff, then I'll lose them a little bit on that line. Now you might go, well, that's not funny. That's not a funny enough line. Well, maybe not, but every comedian has that line where they go like, Okay. Oh, they're this, testing the waters. This joke is the joke where I, if I get a great laugh here, I'm having a wonderful show. This is a great crowd and they're my people. And, and if I don't get it as much, then I'm going to have to do some more, you know, I'll, whatever. So that I only say that in order to say like, that's you know, you have these ideas of radioactivity or or, or areas where people don't want to go. And some people toy with that. You know, they'll set up a like weird racial thing in the beginning and then they do a twist at the end and go, oh, it wasn't what I thought. Anyway, climate change and the environment I have like feels like radioactivity because... Uh, for a deep for a deeper reason this is just my theory but for a deeper reason on stage it feels that way for a deeper reason that it is it's like that for us generally like uh, politically right now like the things that animate people and I think this is sort of changing but the things that really animate people on the left or on the the, the sort of liberal side of things are like trans rights racial uh, equality um, these things that are they are very understandable. It's like, I know a trans person. I I know, even if I don't know a trans person, I'm aware of inequality. I know individuals who have been trampled upon. I've seen with, with, with um, racial equality, like I've seen, even if I don't have a lot of friends of color, I've still like, I've seen roots or I've seen, you know, I've seen, um, you know, uh, um, um, uh, moonlight. I like, I get these gay rights. I get these individuals. Then you widen out to something as, abstract and existentially dooming as climate and it's like you i do it myself when i think about i was walking recently i was on the beach and i was like looking at these animals or these birds and i was thinking about the extinction report that just came out and i felt my brain go there and run away like i was just like i don't even i do this all the time i haven't read that new york times um piece about how like we could have averted climate change in the eighties, but we didn't because I can feel my brain like running up to it and running away. Cause it feels, I feel so helpless. I feel so, it feels so impossible and huge and existential that my brain runs from it. And I think I'm sure that that is why common comedians don't immediately run to it because it's like, it's so gigantic and scary and terrifying even for the comedian telling the joke that it's probably difficult. I would love to figure out how to do it, but it's probably difficult to wrap your brain around because really like comedy is really about taking big, big, huge issues and then making them kind of granular, absurdifying them, not a word. And then like, you know, tossing <laughs> them at, at an audience and making them like, Oh, ha, ha this is so funny. And it just feels like I don't really know how to do that with like in, literal impending doom.
0: Yeah. No, it's so interesting, man. I mean, because I mean, you have a, a line in one of your specials where you walk out and you say uh, something like, "The good news is everyone you know is going to die, and then you're going to die, right?" right. Which is this kind of impending doom, yeah, it, story. But it's it's different in some way, and I'm sure I'm trying but, to delineate. But I will say that's another one that that
2: uh, I'll tell you the secret of that line. First of all, that line's not very funny, and you might think it is because it got a laugh on the album but I had a lot of like grace on the al- now here's the real issue the uh, the album that's my first album and I wasn't as developed as. and the, what is the
0: line because I know I butchered it
2: I don't even really know the, I know that the, the album was called everyone you know is going to die and then you are unless you die first that's the name of the album and I had this album idea that because it was my first album and I wasn't I didn't have a full hour of stand up and I wanted to do this concept album where I did like you know 35-40 f- minutes of stand up and then I did these like written bits and uh, like they were like in studio bits and that they that the album would be released and this is what it is as a concept album where America's greatest comedian um, Moshe Kasher who died years ago all of the recordings the final recordings of his work had been found by his um, by his son and wife who after he died they found this like you know posthumous collection of work and then released them as uh, as like you know it was this whole concept album whatever I'm proud of the album. But I know that when I went on out stage, I was like, well, I don't really speak to like that. The, fund, the like the concepts there, but there's nothing in the material that's about that really speaks to this line. Everyone, you know, is going to die in the new York. So I kind of like riffed it. And it, but I will say, like talking about death and impending death and your parents are going to die. Like, that's a line I do sometimes on stage when I do a college. I'll say, oh, um, just 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 uh, something to think about is like all your parents are are going to die someday. But anyway, just think about that for the rest of the show. Like <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, I, I think that's a similar one. It's, it's similarly radioactive, which is like, you know, I don't think crowds love that that <laughs> area.
0: Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm reading this book right now called Sapiens. Have you heard of it? I'm
2: also reading that book. Fucking
0: amazing, right? So it, in, I think, the first or second chapter, he talks about this idea of creating um, fictions. Yeah. Right, and the power that Ho- Homo sapiens had to create Basically, myths—things that weren't real—that we can't we can't necessarily touch or point to. Like, right. and that could be something as large to that would allow us to organize in larger groups than 150 people. Right, so a nation is in some way—it's a myth. You can't really point to what a nation it's is. A, it's can- a
2: full myth. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's a, it's completely fictional, yeah. right? And yeah, and and but but he he it describes like. I'm an American, you're an American, that fiction allows us to connect. Like, oh, we have that in common.
0: Or, hey, I work at Apple and so do you. Right. What is Apple? Is it just the products? Is it just the employees? Is it just the money inside it? Like, there's nothing, there's no real one thing that you can point to, but we all believe in these myths and stories. And he argues that, it's because of this ability that has allowed us to organize in such large groups behind these common narratives. Right, And it's been kind of a mind warper for me oh, over the last couple days because I'm noticing that all throughout life, all it is are these stories that are being projected onto us. And, and as a comedian, you are then voicing your own story out into the world and hoping that it's a sticky enough story that people will be attracted to it. And then I was thinking about that in terms of environmentalists and the climate change movement and i was thinking what is their story there's their story is an end of days story mm-hmm. and an end of days story isn't as good as many other ones
2: well yeah although to his credit and the environmental movement's credit like the the way that he, he does a thing maybe later in the book maybe you're not there yet and i by the way i had a, a lot of I had a bad time. I am having a bad time reading that book. Like it's not, a, I'm not enjoying the read. It's amazing and brilliant, but it's like, depre- it's been very depressing for me. Well, be- be- well one, of the, one of the main myths that he continues to bring up over and over again is, and the reason it's so depressing is he lays out his arguments so thoroughly and so well that it's, it feels unassailable and it feels sort of true. And one of the myths that he keeps bringing up is the myth of human rights. That the, this mythology, that it's myth, mythological and false, not false, that's the wrong word for it, but that it's made up, that human rights are inherent or are... Uh, important, and I mean the obvious example you already mentioned: bonobos, like a chimpanzee killing an, another chimpanzee. You don't look at that and go like a murderer is among them. You go like ah, law of the jungle, and his whole thing is that we're all just a a a, a you know an iteration of Homo. <laughs> But you know what I mean? And so like the only reason that we go, ah, a murderer, a child molester is bad and naughty is because we have developed these uh, narratives and these stories about ourselves that go, there are morals, there are values, there are rights. People have the right to live. Like nobody thinks that a gazelle has the right to live when a lion crushes its windpipe, right? You just go like hungry lion. Ha ha ha. I'll watch that on. I mean, imagine what, if we did that. Imagine. If you watched human beings killing each other the way you watch lions killing each other on like a, our planet or whatever on Netflix, you're like, did you want to watch the uh, rapist murderer show? Like, ah, oh, here is man in his natural environment hiding in a bush. Like, you just it's so it's so fucking disturbing. And according to Harari, like there's really no real inherent difference in a in a man hunting for sport another man and a polar bear hunting for sport uh, uh you know what i mean like
0: yeah well and we're so adaptive it's just what we're born into i mean and I, you made a point at the beginning of this show about how you think that uh everyone's kind of gone crazy since trump and i think that maybe that's because he's just taken all of these stories and said fuck you guys right. you thought i couldn't do that did you see hyper normalization no this-
2: it's a I don't blame you. It's this insanely long, very dry, dense and fascinating documentary that you can find on YouTube that basically it's it's essentially like it takes the, the, the ideas in, in sapiens to like another level, which is like, okay, so we're all engaged in these myths, and there are certain ones that we that we actually know are myths. Like like you know, I don't believe that human rights are I mean, I believe in what that he's saying. It's a myth. And I understand what he means by that. But then there's another part of me that's like, but that's the whole thing that human beings did as we created morality. And some of those systems of morality are totally bunk and bullshit. Read the the war in dr- on drugs. Right. But some of them seem like, well, yeah, we're more sophisticated than animals because we don't, you know, accept as morally acceptable that you would kill killing a child. But if you see, like I said, a lion do it, you go like, well, that seems (laughs) the jungle. Right. And
0: we have these very conflicting stories when we see, like I came over and I gave you some deer meat, you know, and, uh, Uh, I'm sure that and some people that I would give deer meat to would be like ooh but is that story cohesive Uh, with my narrative are you moral or like I thought you were that's like stone surfer dude wait you're a cold blooded killer Kyle and it gets ooky
2: right but if you came over with some child meat I wouldn't have that there wouldn't be ooky I'd be like oh you are I'm calling the police (laughs) right
0: Kyle I will only give a half an hour for this podcast (laughs) now
2: I will keep my wetsuit though because uh, Ulex baby but um um, hypernormalization says, like, we've taken that myth yeah, a lot. like,
0: well, you know, I'll eat the, I, I, baby meat, but, like, there's no petroleum in my wetsuit, so yeah, it yeah, all yeah, kind of yeah. evens out. Yeah, that
2: no, seems like an even trade. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, like, these these myths have been taken to another level, which is that there are certain myths. And, and I, I can't really sum, uh, summarize this documentary because it's so, I mean, I didn't understand 40% of it. But essentially, that there are certain myths that we actually know are myths, and that it, it just serves us, the people, and uh, more importantly, the state, to feed us those myths, and because it can, it makes, there is no cohesion in society. There never has been cohesion in society, and there is uh there is um. That there are myths that keep the the chaos that is society from bubbling over into absolute, you know, just uh, bedlam, right? And so Anarchy. the perfect, the biggest example he gave was like uh, an easy one to wrap your head around is Soviet, the Soviet Union. Uh, in this, in the ends of the Soviet Union, um, everyone knew that the state was failing, right? It's very simple because you would go to buy bread and there would be three-hour lines to buy bread. Like, there's no myth left there. You are aware that this isn't working. But nobody in Soviet Russia would have admitted that. you know maybe behind closed doors but really but it wasn't just that people were lying they were actually lying to themselves and we're we're engaged in the same thing you know we're doing that right now like we're all looking at like the the collapse of the American democratic system I mean everybody knows that this isn't working everyone every I I really think like even the most ardent Trump supporter is just going I'm winning they're not going like this is working maybe I'm wrong maybe they think like this is the iteration of, of the American experiment that was
0: supposed to happen I don't see a lot of people that really believe that things are getting better no like, you know, this is there are a lot of parallels between the 60s movement and now but I think that one of the big shifts or big differences in the, is that in the 60s movement there was this hope that things were going to get better like we have psychedelics totally. we're going to put it they in the water it. and the humanity is going to expand and we're going to give flowers to the cops whereas right I don't know, man. I think a lot of people in my generation are like, holy shit, I'm getting a rifle and I'm gold and hopefully we can ride this one out. Well, totally. And
2: I think it comes back to this, uh, your climate change question, which is like, that's the ultimate hypernormalization example, right? Is that like, if you, you don't, it's like it's obvious something's up with the environment. Like, I mean, it's obvious. There are more hurricanes, there are more wildfires, like there are reports coming in, there's footage of glaciers collapsing. And so that is too chaotic uh, and, and, and terrifying of a narrative to really like fully give your brain to. So instead what you'll do is you'll go, if you're, if you're an extremist on the right, you'll say it's a myth, it's a made up, you know, it's, it's just a lie. You know, it isn't happening. And if you're, but more likely if you're a moderate centrist, you know, or or moderate right leaning person or even a moderate left leaning person, you'll say to yourself, this is what most people say that aren't truly alarmed is, oh, it'll, yes, it's bad, but we have, there's an abstract solution in an abstract fictional future. There's no way this is all going to end. It can't end. Like someone's going to figure it out. That that'll be on Elon Musk. That Elon Musk will figure it out will be on the tombstone of humanity, right? (laughs) (laughs) It'll just (laughs) be one big tombstone. Elon (laughs) Musk should have figured this. Square
0: jawed looking into space. No, I took this class in college uh, where I. Fuck, that's a good one, man. (laughs) Well, it was
2: an assist. You 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 uh, laid it up. Laid it up. I merely dunked. Um, But no, but they. They, uh, This essay I read in college from this uh, ecological philosopher, I don't remember who it was, I don't even remember anything else but this one line, which is, it is the great obsession of man that uh, any calam- calamity, no matter how severe, will be solved by a theoretical technology at some abstract point in the future. And that... That really struck me. I haven't forgotten it since I read it because I realized reading it like that works exactly as many times as it does. And then when it doesn't, you're fucking done for. The one time that hope doesn't work is you're fucking done for. And like Obama's whole thing. I don't know why are we talking politics. But anyway, Obama's whole thing was like, you know, well, it's a it's a a ship. You know his ship metaphor. He had this no. ship metaphor. Where no, but
0: deeper voice. He's more of Obama's, a. Obama's. Uh, it's a.
2: It's a ship. Uh, Ob- I'm not an impressionist, but but uh, <laughs> Obama's uh, whole thing uh, was that you know societies are like a a great ocean liner, and you don't you don't turn an ocean liner on a dime. You it's a slow turn. You 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 list. You don't you don't pivot. And I'm like, the fucking ship is sinking. The ship is taking on water. And also, forget your metaphor. The fucking ice caps are melting. Help.
0: You know, I was having, uh, this kind of goes back to the the power of cultural memes and and this kind of thing. Um, In the 60s, there was this meme going around that uh, the the, uh, administration was saying that around the Vietnam War that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And they right. kept repeating, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And my uh, my uncle, who was very uh, involved in the 60s movement, he said, then someone came along, I forget who it was, who said, yeah, but let's hope it's not a train. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that strange. was like the most you know, viral meme of right. the times because all of a sudden that it just kind of tore it, down it, that it,
2: myth. Well, exactly. And, and the Vietnam War is a perfect example right. of that hypernormalization theory, which is that the people in in charge of the Vietnam War at a certain point, all figured out. Robert McNamara, Henry Kissinger, everybody inside the intelligentsia of the United States war machine was like, okay, we can't win. They all knew it. Years, right? I mean, this isn't even like, I'm not like introducing a truth bomb here like everybody knows this they knew they couldn't win but they also what they were interested in and invested in was maintaining the status quo of because what they were afraid of was what it would mean if the united states said point blank we can't win this war and what that would do to the national morale what that would do to the national story what that would do to the america that we know to the extent that they still are perpetuating a lie of winning a war i mean no one believes that lie right that we won the vietnam war nobody and yet people will repeat it and believe it on this like weird climate american change. exceptionalism yeah thing yeah and you go you'd say to that person like four four questions into about the vietnam war and eventually they'll just go like
0: i love america it's like okay cool chris ryan always tells me um this quote, and I, I forget who the original person who said it is, so I apologize, but um, an era can be considered over when its um, primary myths have been exhausted.
2: Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Are we there?
0: I don't I don't know. We sure are talking about it. But, you know, I think that the importance of art and the importance of artists to um, either perpetuate new myths or tear down old ones can be seen in. And, you know, an example during the Vietnam War was that photograph that was taken of the, the naked little girl that was running down the street that had napalm on her back. Right. And it was just this image that galvanized a movement because there was no amount of explaining your way out of it. You know, the Kissingers of the world, you know, they could make their arguments that, you know, with these this is communism. But I think Americans at the time had not been inundated enough with with enough of those kinds of images that they saw this little girl on fire, naked, screaming. And they had to take a look at themselves and say, "Whoa, what are we doing here?"
2: Do you think that there is such an image that that the world could see now that would make us all shatter our collective myth and go, "Here's here's truth." Or have we built Cuz to me it feels like I feel like now You'd show that same image, and the two it's, people looking at it would—it would be like that. Um, I know exactly Yanny, the image. Yanni, uh, you know the white dress, yellow dress. thing. They'd be like, "That's no, no, no. I see a, I see a young terrorist coming with a."
0: Moshe, I know the image. It's me on a sixty-foot wave, showing the world what's possible.
2: <laughs> you think that? That's what, you're like wild stallions, and Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And we could all ride this wave.
0: I don't remember that one. I've seen Bill and Ted, but it's too oh, long.
2: Well, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is based on the, the story that Wild Stallions, the, the rock band, eventually brought peace and harmony to a shattered society. So perhaps, but what would bring more stability? Would it be you on a 60-foot wave, triumphant, riding it? Or would it be me on my on my wave storm on a 60-foot wave, and the look in my eye was like, I, I am going to die And then everyone would realize, like, we're all going to die. And they'd realize, like, because death is imminent, we might as well find find a way.
0: Well, I wonder if a lot of these new, you know, Netflix and HBO shows where the protagonist dies at the end are so popular because we're starting to identify with this myth (laughs) that we might not make it. Right. And maybe that's why people dug the motherfucker awards. Is that like, Whoa, we're all going to die,
2: but let's go down laughing. Speaking of death and laughter, I am obsessed with the idea of what would happen to me if I paddle, if I paddled for a 60 foot wave, would I die? Would I like What would What would happen Like I'm at Mavericks And just somehow God God Or Christopher Ryan (laughs) Has dropped me One and the same I'm there And I'm just like Oh no I'm on a board I'm in my Ulex Right And it's It's a fucking 60 footer Like Am I just a dead person, or can I make it? It's a
0: lot like what would happen to Alex Honnold if he fell from the cliff. He would just explode <laughs> into a million little <laughs> pieces. Why, why, no.
2: Like, why? what's the difference between... I, I'm honestly curious. What's, okay, I can't make the wave. That I'm clear. I know what the difference between you and me making the wave is. What's the difference between you and me not making the wave?
0: Well, it all depends. Okay, so, I mean, in all seriousness... Um, if you fell on a really big wave at Mavericks, I mean, a huge amount of it is, I mean, it's a great, it's a great, luck. Meta, it's a great luck? Mm, yeah, luck is a big one. You know, how far the, the wave will push you down. So Mavericks right. is kind of famous for pu- pushing people really deep down mm. and holding them down for a very long time. So a lot of it would be dependent on if you, if there was another wave behind it, you know? Right, right, right. But I, I think that kind of the, the metaphor that anyone who surfs or doesn't can, can, um, kind of wrap their head around is that your success would be directly proportional to the, uh, uh, your ability to relax in that moment. Uh So if you could relax and tell yourself that, Hey, this is just going to be 30 seconds. I can do anything for 30 seconds to even a minute. Mm -hmm. It's going to feel like a really long time. And if you could, uh, if you could force your mind to not go into that panic button so the panic is what would kill the panic you panic is what would kill you oh, yeah the panic
2: is what kills because then you scream and you
0: The the panic is what kills most people in the ocean i mean the riptide is a great example of this too i've i've had to save a number of people who get swept out in riptides down right. at this wave uh called puerto escondido in mexico the riptides are so strong they're basically they're these rivers that will mm-hmm. just take you out and if you relax, the river will take you out, and then you can kind of you swim sideways, and then you could swim in. But
2: do you know the new theory on um, on riptides? Do you tell. I just read an article about this. There was some study that was done about riptides t- rip that yes, that's the conventional wisdom is chill out, and then go sideways. But the new wisdom says freak out and try to swim as hard as you can. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The new wisdom is that that works sometimes, but just as likely or more likely is chill out and don't swim sideways. Just chill. And the riptide will eventually, as often as not, or it'll bring you back to shore Mm. on its own. Yeah. There was some like crazy riptide scientist guy that was like, just stay and it'll bring you back to shore.
0: Uh, That makes sense. I mean, if I... Yeah. I mean, most times when I, if I get caught in Riptide, it's just about chilling out. And right. I, and I, and the, what you need to do is be very aware of your physicality in that moment, which is really difficult to do. Cause you're all of a sudden you're in your head and you're like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. What's going to happen to my kid. Oh my, I need to shoot that stand up special next month. And this is never going to happen. Wait, what,
2: what, what order do you think I would think about those things in? I
0: think was, you'd first be like, I have both. I first, it, first would be the RV that would be at the top <laughs> of your list. Like I need to get a new RV. I was going to buy a new uh, RV Yeah, then it would be like stand up and then it would be like Oh, I didn't eat that deer that Kyle gave me, right. and then it'd be like, Oh, my wife. Oh, oh no. And then that picture of that girl in Vietnam
2: and then like, oh wait, I have children. Oh yeah. wait, oh shit. I gotta paddle <laughs> yeah. as hard as I can against this riptide. Right. I certainly hope I'm not giving your listeners bad um information here, but I did read this article and they did say No,
0: no, I, I I think that the most important thing if you get caught in the ocean or basically in any situation that you could die in is just to relax. I, I think that, that that's basically paramount in I mean that's why drunk drivers survive accidents. Right, right, right. Because right. there's they they relax.
2: What's the scaredest you've ever been in and out of the ocean? I know that this is your podcast, but I'm asking the questions now. You
0: flip the script yeah, on me, man. sir. Um most scared I've ever been in and out of the water. Um, well, I'll go out of the water and it was very near to the water. Uh, this happened to me just a couple months ago. I think it was it when was.
2: I intimidated you in the parking lot, right?
0: The, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was when I saw that Ulex wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> you, you called me out on my petrol wetsuit. Yeah. like, fuck. Uh, I was learning how to kite board mm-hmm. down in Costa Rica on this very windy day. And it was my third lesson. I've told this story a couple times, so I'll do it quickly. But it was my third day. The instructor did not have my back. He put me on a, uh, a kite that was way too big for me. I launched the kite. I was on the beach and I got hoisted into the air and threw, Like was basically just turned into a human catapult. And flew about 20 feet down the beach and snapped my wrist. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Who's on
2: kook slams now, bitch?
0: You know, there was a video that looked almost exactly like what happened to me. But the feeling of being that out of control and not knowing what to do was very frightening for me. It must be interesting for you, too, as a person that's like a master surfer.
2: I assume that's sort of true about you. I know you wouldn't say that about yourself. But like to be like sort of on a board and at the beach but also like a, just a kooky bitch. Well, like it's, just well, it's like, like
0: shit. I'm dealing with a whole new element here. Yeah, but
2: it's like funny because it's so close to what you can do. Right. It's like what happens to me when I do poetry. Slams, right. Exactly. Man. It's the same thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I would imagine you're like I should be good I at this. Feels like it. I
2: should be doing this right. Well,
0: and the, it's like I'll bet you it's like the equivalent of uh, the the person who's who's hosting the show. Like, oh Moshe, you're a comedian. You can also do poetry. Uh-huh. That's what they. That's what my instructor is like. Oh, you're a good surfer. You can also do kiteboarding, but yeah, the feeling of being that out of control was very frightening to me. That is scary. And I actually did a um, afterwards. I was I I was kind of freaked out, and I would have these little moments of like like tightening and panic, Mm. like in the car uh, weeks after. And uh, I talked to someone about it uh, who's a, uh, a psychologist specialist, and he said I recommend that you go through that moment in your mind again and again and again. And that will help desensitize you to the experience.
2: That reminds me of, um, are you, have you ever talked to anybody from, um, maps on this podcast from the yeah. multidisciplinary yeah, yeah, of association? Of course. Dr. Like, Jim Fadiman. So, um,
0: yes. So maps is based in Santa Cruz. So they, Oh yeah. So yeah. they do. I've, I've
2: talked to like Rick Doblin and uh, a couple of the other guys there about their PTSD studies. Have you, do you know about this? Have you talked about this on the yeah. podcast? Yeah, let's talk it's about essentially it. the same idea, right? Which is that when a person goes to war, they get by the way like nowadays PTSD means like I have a memory I don't enjoy but like you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. like I've got total PTSD from getting fired I'm like it's, there you know, was I so much traffic yeah, last night PTSD <laughs> post-traffic stress disorder yeah. but but basically what happens with PTSD is you have a horrifying memory and then you like you know you build a little uh a a a, a A wall around it because it's so traumatic. You you know it's radioactive. It's the same exact thing that we've been talking about. It's like how we think about climate change. You go to it and you I I can't deal with that. So you build this wall around the worst memory, and you never deal with it. And so it you know it pops. It oozes out and manifests itself in your life, and then you freak out and you're fucking doing whatever you know uh, depression and and punching a window or punching your wife or whatever. So essentially what ecstasy what mdma does uh uh, and what it was originally designed to do psychologically was to have couples like have these conversations where they aren't um they're having they're talking about their feelings without any reservations it's it's breaking all those down so that you can kind of like you know that's why it's called like the love drug because you can say without feeling too overly earnest everything is coming back to itself right in this conversation you, you can say oh i love you and i've always loved you you know to your partner and not have like i feel like i'm fucking stupid and wouldn't idiot i sound like so that's the one thing you can't do with ptsd is go to that memory and just go like here it is so then you take mdma along with a therapist and along with a regimen of therapy and you can go to that memory that horrifying memory of the your friend being killed or whatever it is i'm sure i'm oversimplifying how easy it is but you can essentially take the drug go to the memory process the memory without the wall of defense coming up and that slowly over time you can like work the memory, work the memory because the drug is actually helping you deal with it without freaking out. And they say, and maps says, I'm sure that you guys talked about on this, that the, uh, the recovery rate from PTSD with the MDMA, uh, assisted therapy is something like 80%. I'm not, I'm making these numbers up and that the recovery rate, uh, of, uh, traditional, like just therapeutic model is something like 20%. Like the, 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 ratio is literally inverse.
0: Yeah. Um, I had a guy named Dr. Peter Atia on this podcast. He's a expert in longevity and he's, he's buddies with Tim Ferriss. Do you know who that is? Mm-hmm. He's a, a big podcaster. They're both kind of like hot shots who are investing a bunch of money in, in maps and in, um, making psychedelics and MDMA legal. And he said, uh, in regards to MDMA, I'm not sure that there's a more relevant synthetic compound known to man at this point. Yeah. And man, I I took very quality MDMA with my girlfriend about a month ago and we sat in our bed, took MDMA and fucking just talked mm-hmm. for like 8 hours straight. And it was one of the only times I've ever taken MDMA and didn't and was not distracted by fucking Tiesto and fucking Tiesto and light shows and blow on my face. Woo! And it it was really profound for me just to notice how much uh, drug experiences I've squandered with all of these external distractions because it literally felt like a year of therapy in an evening because... The intention was known whenever I would say something to my girlfriend, she would say something to me, that it was coming from the best place possible. So there was no fear that it was going to be taken the wrong way, as we so often have. Did
2: you guys sleep together?
0: We didn't. You know it's funny? As we thought we were, we're like, "Oh, this is going to get fucking crazy. It's uh-huh. Got all the toys. This is going to be so fun. And we just like... Hugged and talked.
2: You're like holding it. You're like, I don't want a, tick- a clit tickler, I want a heart tickler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what What would be the worst um, uh, heavy psychedelic drug to surf a sixty foot wave on?
0: Um. <sighs> I, I mean, it, I think that it all kind of depends on your mindset going into it. There's a guy named Daryl Flea Verasco, who was a three times Mavericks champion. And mm-hmm. there's a famed story about him taking acid the first time he ever surfed Mavericks. So acid it feels help,
2: like it could really put you in the pocket. It could
0: put you in the zone. I mean, yeah. there's a there's a fable about Shane Beshin, who is a, f- a former pro surfer. He was the only surfer to ever get three tens, mm-hmm. ten point rides. Hot uh, girls
2: on the beach. Oh, yeah, three to once, though. Three, That's hard. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people have had a, a threesome, but a foursome. Three holes, one cap. With, with Yes, three tens, one surfer. He
0: got three tens in, in a heat at Kira, like, and surfed it so perfectly. He's the amazing barrels. And the fable goes, I cannot confirm this, that he took LSD beforehand. I kind of believe that. I used
2: to love acid, and it, it does make you feel like everything you're doing is brilliant, and everything is like, you got it. Yeah. If you're not freaking out, although there is also, like you don't want to be thinking a lot about impending death and i think i would imagine a a huge wave would sort of yeah (laughs) you don't need you don't
0: need anything to uh to make you feel like you're having a psychedelic trip when you see a wave that large yeah i mean that's one of the best things about surfing bigger waves is just the view man you just get so close to
2: so much power that's cool you know what else has a really good view is like mountaintops and buildings
0: yeah, so you just, just go up there
2: you go this is a great view and then you come on down you <laughs> yeah. come on but you know the view from a 2 foot from a 1 to 2 foot day dude you don't even understand on a foamy on a foamy
0: dog uh, on acid <laughs> on some DMT <laughs> no
2: i can't justify doing it. yeah DMT i could actually the waves i surf you you could surf the waves i surf on like a, an overdose of DMT you could literally be overdosing and you'd still be like, well, these are pretty small. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, that's, I'll tell you, man, it, there is, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about uh, your your skill in surfing and progression. And I've, there are surfers that are much, much better than I am. And I know that I will never get to their level. And it is true that it doesn't matter what level you're you're at it's just about making it to that next step mm. three foot to four foot 20 foot to 25 foot right
2: totally you know they say there's the old saying you know who the uh, best surfer in the lineup is it's the guy who's <laughs> the best at surfing and doing the best technical <laughs> the guy, tricks. i was
0: gonna say it's the guy with the ulex <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> yeah but you know it's it, what's what else is interesting is like my story i think largely is like i i I'm lucky enough that I get paid some money to surf, but largely it's because I've been able to kind of wiggle my way into this surfer journalist role. Mm -hmm. Like in a lot of circles, you know, I'm, I'm just not good enough. I do not have the skill Uh to be on that top echelon level, but I provide something else, which is, you know, the podcast, the journalist that allows me to get invited on some of these trips with some of the better surfers in the world. And I think that there is a lesson in that, which is that it's not even, it's not actually about being, the goal is not to be the best. It's just to be able to get invited to that party.
2: <laughs> that's so true. And like way you, beyond surfing, that's, way beyond that's sort surfing, of but everywhere. like
0: you're, you know, you're a, a comedian and you like, you've gotten to this high level in one aspect of your life, which now allows you to pivot into all these other worlds where you're accepted.
2: There's a funny thing that happens to you when you're, I, I, I don't know if everybody's had this experience, but like when I like in terms of levels, when I was about to move to LA from San Francisco, I was like at the peak I was the, and I was thinking to myself like, Oh my God, I, I think I'm the best comedian in the world actually. I mean like not literally, but I was pretty close to like, I mean, I think I must be the greatest comedian that exists. And then I moved to LA and I was like, oh no, I just met, I just joined all of the people that were having that thought in their hometown. And I'm like, oh no, no, I'm just, I've only popped into another layer of the onion. You know what I mean? What did that feel like? It was, it was intimidating, but in in a positive way. And I'm sure in the very similar way to getting to like, to going from like, you know, comfort level waves to like, oh shit, I'm actually, I'm able to surf here, but like, I'm at the top of my ability. I'm, you know, it takes all that I've got to, to, to be in the room here. Yes, exactly. And so, no, they, that is an example of like being humbled and being thrown in with the sharks. That was really good. Cause it was like, Oh, I see. I was, oh, I was, I wasn't the best com- comedian in the world. I was ready to leave my hometown. And that's all that it is. Did
0: it change any behavior for you? Did you start working harder? Did you shift your method? Did, what did that humbling experience do to your craft? Well, it's a weird kind
2: of... It's an interesting iteration of humility because it's a humility that's based on the fact that you're like, oh, I'm in this uh, strata of... uh, I don't want to say greatness and fucking suck my own dick here. But like, you know what I mean? It's like you're at a, it's not true humility. It's not, or I guess maybe it is because they used to say in AA, I was in AA for a long time. They used to say, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less or something like that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. There's a lot of pithy axioms and AA AA is a font of great (laughs) sayings. I will, I will, I will say, (laughs) give it that if nothing else. Um, and so that was, it's not a real humility cause you're actually going like, I am as good as these people or, or at least I belong in the, as you said, I'm, I, I'm in the room with them. Um, but yeah, I think it made me work a little bit harder and, and definitely. Yeah. And
0: how, and how do you work?
2: How do I, yeah. How do you
0: like, if you, how do you come up with a concept? Will you just give me an example of, of coming up with that set inse- of the inception of the idea to it? working on stage. Well, it's
2: interesting because as you get older in comedy, it, the, the bar gets raised more and more and so ideas that would... And I think maybe this is bad uh, in some ways. Ideas that wouldn't make it to the stage... That would have made it to the stage for sure back in the day. Like, I will take and just toss. You Now. Because I'm just like, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. So it takes more. For me, this isn't true for every comedian. But it takes more for me to get material than it used to. First of all, I've observed most of the things that I've, you know, the most of the immediate observations. I've strip-mimed my life for, uh, you know, where the comedic moments are. And so now it's like I'm really squinting at the world. Like, where the fuck is it? But um, most my actual process is I will come up with a funny idea. Usually I will. I'm a little unusual. Um, in that I don't really keep a notebook or anything like that. I never really have. So everything really is like in my brain and in my memory. I'll come up with an idea and then I'll like try to flesh it out into at least some comedic beats and then I'll do it on stage and see what works and what doesn't. I'll add stuff and then over time the bit will usually get longer and longer and longer turn into a story. Do you have one that you can think of? I have one that Is new? Yeah, yeah, I do. I have one right now that I've never told on stage, and I don't know if it's funny or not. And I don't actually have the language to make it like stage ready, but it's essentially it's about um, how guys will fuck a stripper on their honeymoon. They go like, they'll be like, "Did you have you fucked a honeymoon? Did you fuck a stripper?" And be like, "Oh, are you no? Are you not familiar with cheating on your wife? Are you not familiar with that concept?" And then. Uh, then they, they go. Oh no! Oh no! No, I would never do that because after I get married, like you know, I've taken a, I've taken a vow before my wife and God. And like, oh God! Oh, I didn't know you were religious. Oh, how does your God feel about you getting a blowjob at a spearmint rhino? Like, the, so. There's some there it's got beats, but it's not it's not ready. It yeah, have but, the language yeah, but to, you're
0: pointing out the mental schism that's in so many guys' minds right before the, like uh, I've never cheated on her, but the, the fundamental uh,
2: observation is that it's okay to fuck us fuck someone before you do a ceremonial uh, uh, you tell yourself a mythological story that human beings tell themselves it's like, oh no, I've done a ceremony, so now it's, uh, it's just like, you can fuck the stripper to the day after you get married as well. She's always down to fuck you. She is ready. It only costs $180. Right. You know. so, so
0: will you will you take that on stage knowing what the punchline is going to be, or will you still just be kind of working out the idea well, as the pun- you take it Those
2: on? are three punchlines, whether you think they're funny or not. Right. L- hey, who knows? But there are three punchlines in there. One is, uh, are you not familiar with cheating on your wife? Right. Oh, I didn't realize you were religious. I de- that that feels like the weakest one. But to me, it's very funny. But I also recognize it's kind of like not a great laugh line. Because uh, it's funny to me that a person who's talking about fucking a stripper is talking about, oh, no, an oath before, before God. God. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then blowjob at a spearmint rhino. Right. Going to get a laugh. I already know that that one will get a laugh. I can guarantee that that will get a laugh. I don't know if it's the funniest thing I've ever written, but I know it'll get a laugh because it's got the it's got all the elements. It's yeah. got a specific reference, a weird reference, like that most
0: it, guys have been to or well, know about. Well, just saying
2: spearmint rhino. You know, it's like uh, since we're doing comedy deconstruction. Like, I think I've never fucked a stripper at a strip club, but I don't think you do that at a spearmint rhino. I think you do that at a more skeezy one. But it isn't funny. It would be much less funny to say getting like I was originally the punchline was going to be more specific specificity is funny. And so a reference like spearmint rhino that make, I think that makes it 20% funnier if, than if I were to say, Oh, is your God okay with you getting your dick sucked in, in, in at a, whore, lap, at, at a whorehouse in or, the lap dance room at a strip right. club. Like there's something funny about spearmint rhino. Um, and originally I wanted to say a, a table shower. It's getting a hand job at a table shower at a spearmint rhino, which is, I think that runs the risk of being too specific like that's almost too right. many references. You,
0: well, it also I mean the the two lines that you had before they're similar sentence length. So maybe adding in those extra words would be There are long. all those things and there are certain people
2: that are more scientific than I am. Like my friend Louis Katz is like he's kind of like he's a great joke writer. He's like really great joke writer. I've got I'm like I do long bits. I don't generally tell like setup punchline jokes. And I do a lot of crowd work, and I'm a very performative comedian, right? And so, like that, I know what my my skills are are, are specific, and I'm a big performer, and uh, and but he's his his jokes are just like tight. I mean, they're fucking they're epic. They're just like perfectly wound, all you know, and like that kind of comedy. I mean, I wish I was more like that, but it doesn't actually appeal to me to do it because it just feels uh, like uh, engineering, you know. But um, but. Yeah It's 7.30 oh. Yeah we're ready to go Oh wow We, go. we gotta go Moshe <laughs> Kasher Oh jeez I gotta go Wow I'm already late uh, Listen My wh- have been there for like 15 minutes waiting for us Why didn't you come tell me? I've been calling you I don't want to interrupt your my podcast My child, my dog, my wife are in the room We're finished my parents are waiting. Why would you do this, this, is, this to me, man? This is,
0: this is kind of an an epic ending. So. Yeah, it's not an thanks. epic
2: ending for me. This is humiliating, and I will be getting a divorce after this podcast at a Spearmint Rhino.
0: Moshe Kasher, thank you so much. Kyle, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, no. That's our show. I'm going to play out this song called Drip by Kai Killian, and I will link to the band page in the show notes. If you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, email it to info at And that's also where you can send these voice memos. I love getting them from you. Just click the voice memos app on your phone and record, you know, 90 seconds of audio, maybe less, and let me know who you are and uh, impart some wisdom on this little community of ours. Uh, if you enjoy this show, please consider donating on Patreon. You can go to my website, kyle.surf slash... And just kyle.surf. There's a Patreon link thingy right there. It's real easy. Um, if you can't, don't worry about it. But if you are enjoying these podcasts free of charge as I make them, please take a minute and give this podcast a rating on iTunes. It, it seriously takes you about 40 seconds and it helps boost the rating and then it helps me get bigger guests and it's a win-win-win-win-win situation so without further ado i hope that you enjoy this song by kai killian called drip and i'll see you guys soon have a great weekend